want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we're going to start working our way through what's called the armor of God tonight in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, but before we get to Ephesians 6, I want to look at, again, 2 Corinthians 10, which is our, our theme verse or our, our main text for this series on spiritual warfare. And so if we could go to uh, 2 Corinthians 10, we'll start there, and then we'll look at Ephesians chapter 6. Before we get started, let's just pray tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is inerrant. It is without error. It is powerful. It is authoritative. Lord, it, it doesn't return void, but it accomplishes the purpose that you send it out to accomplish. And so, Lord, as we spend time in your word tonight, we open up our hearts to receive what it is that you want to do in us and through us. We thank you for the time of worship that we've had. We thank you for the prayers that we know that you hear and that you hear and answer our prayers. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would bless this time together and help us, Lord, to, to just feast on the bread of life tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is, is serving, for, serving us as our main text, our theme text in this series on spiritual warfare. Of course, last week we took a, a brief break as Kingsley Armstrong ministered to us. And how many of you appreciate that word that he spoke uh, last week? It was wonderful. I was very blessed by that. And so uh, back into our series now on spiritual warfare. And uh, for 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, that is, we, we live in this natural world, that there's a battle waging, he says, that's not a physical battle, but a spiritual one. So though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not material. When we're talking about spiritual warfare and spiritual battles, we're not talking about hand-to-hand -hand combat. We're not talking about taekwondo or karate or... Or we're not talking about physical weapons of swords and guns and things like that. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. That, that these weapons that we fight with have God's power behind them. And that God's power behind them is for a specific purpose, he says, is to destroy. That's to demolish. That's to abolish. That's to eradicate, that is to leave in total and utter ruin, strongholds. Strongholds, those are fortified places that the enemy has taken over, territory that the enemy has taken. We are to destroy those places. And then he goes in and he, he specifically mentions what these strongholds are. In verse 5 he says, we destroy arguments. Now that's something that might seem strange when we think of spiritual warfare, but that is in fact what spiritual warfare is. It is going against the lies of the enemy. Arguments, he says. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And that we take every thought captive to obey Christ or to make it obey Christ. The, the word here that he says for arguments that we destroy, that's literally the word logismos. It's based on the word logos, which is really the, the word. That there is an anti-word that's gone forth against Christ, the, the true word. And that we take the truth of God's word and apply it to every lie of the enemy. And that is spiritual warfare. That is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not hocus pocus, casting spells, you know, sitting around with the lights really dim and lighting candles and Harry Potter and all this stuff. When people think of spiritual warfare, they think of all that kind of stuff. 
getting out the cross and, you know, doing exorcisms and all of this kind of stuff, that's not spiritual warfare, according to Paul. Now, if you want to get your definition of spiritual warfare from Hollywood, it'll look something more like the exorcist. But, but what we're talking about here is strongholds set up in people's hearts and sp- people's minds that are based on lies, deceit, deceptions against the truth of God, the knowledge of God and the truth of Christ and the gospel. And that's what spiritual warfare is. And so I shared with you that all of the Christian life is spiritual warfare. All of the Christian life. The, the ordinary Christian life is spiritual warfare. As you seek to endeavor to live your life for Christ, what you must do is take every thought captive and say, does this line up with the Word of God? Every thought, every desire, every activity, how does this line up with what the truth of Christ and His Word teaches? And I must make my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, my desires, I must bring them into obedience to Christ. And when I do that, I'm waging spiritual warfare. And that's the whole Christian life. And so the the Bible will use different language to describe the same things. That we're in a spiritual battle, that's one way. Paul uses other language and he says it's like a runner running a race. He uses other language to say it's like a farmer who, who goes out to, to, to sow seed. That the, all of these things are essentially just painting different word pictures of the same thing. So spiritual warfare is just living for Christ in this fallen and broken world. Now, just as a practical example, right off the beginning, before we even get to Ephesians 6 tonight, this morning we were speaking about Marriage. We were speaking about marriage this morning. And, and you can do spiritual warfare in your marriage. In fact, you ought to be. You need to be. If you're married, you, you must be fighting the spiritual battles in your marriage. Well, what does that look like? Let me give you an example. So if, if I am going to take every thought captive, if I am going to... To, to attack strongholds of the enemy set up by lies, specifically with regards to marriage, I must bring my thoughts about marriage into alignment with what God's Word teaches about marriage. Now that's what spiritual warfare is. Well, what are my thoughts about marriage and do they line up with God's Word about marriage? And so marriage, first and foremost, we have to realize, again, like I shared this morning, it is given to us by God. So it is defined by God. So I must bring my definition of marriage into alignment with God's definition of marriage. And so therefore, I am uprooting the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. Now we know Ephesians chapter 5 talks about that, that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And that when a husband lives as a picture of Christ and when a wife lives as a picture of the church, that that marriage brings glory to God. And so as I look at that picture of Christ and the church, if I am a husband, I must ask myself the question, am I being a faithful representation of Christ to my wife and to my children by loving them and dying to myself? And if not, Why not? What have I believed that is causing me to not act on the truth of God's word which calls me as a husband to to sacrificially love and serve my wife and kids like Christ has loved and served the church? What, What am I believing that is stopping me from living that truth out? From dying to myself so that I might serve my wife and kids, and love them in that way sacrificially. And wives, the same is for you. Are you being a faithful representation of the church to your husband and to your children and to the watching world? Which is to say that a a wife is called to submit to her husband as unto the Lord and to respect her husband in the way that we are called to submit to and to respect Christ. 
And so wives, if you are not submitting to your husband and respecting them the way that God's word says that you ought to, you must ask yourself, what have I believed? What have I believed other than the truth of God's word that is stopping me from submitting to my husband and respecting him as Christ calls me to in his word. And when you do that, that is spiritual warfare. That is spiritual warfare. And it starts with us. It starts with with us rightly applying the word of God to ourselves. That's where all spiritual warfare starts. That's not where it stops, but that's definitely where it starts. You'll recall the the story in the Bible of Gideon. You remember Gideon? Gideon, that mighty warrior who's so courageous, who is hiding out, camping out in a cave, hoping the enemy wouldn't find him. And the angel came to Gideon and said, Behold, mighty man of valor. And he looks around, Who, who, me? I'm hiding in a cave. The angel tells him, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from the oppression of the enemy, the Midianites. And Gideon's like, I think you got the wrong Gideon. And so he puts these tests out, right? He puts the fleece out and he he tests these things. And well, it keeps coming back, you know, okay, I guess it's me. But the first thing that God sends Gideon to do is to not go defeat the enemy out there but to go topple the idol in his own house. You see, there was an idol set up in his own village to the false god, to the god of the Midianites. Before God could send Gideon out to conquer the Midianites, he had to conquer the idol in his own house. You see, that's where spiritual warfare starts. It's not out there. We got to take care of business right here. That's why, and Terry mentioned that, or maybe Dan mentioned that verse tonight. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, then I will forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land. God's people have to turn from their wicked ways. That's where revival starts. That's where spiritual warfare starts. It starts... With us, if we're ever hoping to have any kind of moral authority to be able to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, this is what God's word says, we first have to apply it in our own life. Amen? And so we bring every thought captive, every feeling captive. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And friends, I I just have to remind you that there's no way to do that unless you are saturating yourself in the word of God. There's there's just no other way to do it. If, If you are saturating your soul with just mindless, worthless, godless entertainment, how are you going to apply the word of God to your life, the truth of the word? If you're, all of your thoughts are on Victor Wimbanyanam or whatever his guy's name is, we got to take every thought captive. Amen? Now I'm really stepping on some people's toes here tonight. But this is how we do it. We look at what God's word says. And we say, where in my life Am I not living to to what God's word teaches? And the reason if you are not living according to what God's word teaches is because you have believed a lie somewhere. Somewhere. There's a lie somewhere that you have believed and embraced. If you are not obeying the word of God, it's because you have believed a lie. We see that in the Garden of Eden, don't we? When, When... Satan comes and he tempts Eve and he says, did God really say? Half God said. He says, no, 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 that's not true. You won't die. You will be like God yourself. She believed the lie and therefore disobeyed God. Wherever you are not walking in obedience to God's word, 
it is always because somewhere you have believed a lie. You believed a lie about God. You believed a lie about his word somewhere. And spiritual warfare is uprooting the lies of the enemy with the word of God. This is the weapon that we fight with. It is not carnal, but it is mighty and it has divine power. Now, moving on to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Tonight's going to serve as an introduction to what is called the armor of God. After this week, we're going to look at each one of these of the armor of God that's listed here individually. But tonight is that introduction. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day. How many of you can say we're, we're living in evil days? Amen. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is the section that we know as the, the teaching on the armor of God. And I want to draw your attention to a few things uh, tonight. And the first one is the very first word of verse 10. What is that in your Bible tonight? Finally. Finally. Which is to say, in light of everything I've said up to this point, that this teaching on the armor of God, it comes at the, the very end of this uh, letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. Finally. So for us to, and I know that I'm putting us at a, a little bit of a disadvantage tonight, but for, for us to, to really understand what he's talking about in Ephesians 6, I must have grasped chapters 1 through 5. If, if I just parachute into Ephesians 6 and, and try to, to start utilizing and 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 fighting with the armor of God without understanding Ephesians 1 through 5, it will be a fruitless endeavor. And what has he explained to us in Ephesians, especially 1 through 3 and then uh, switching gears in chapters 4 through 6, but especially in Ephesians 1 through 3, he has explained to us who Christ is. Who Jesus is. If I'm going to wage a battle against the devil and hope to be victorious, right? That's what we want to be. We don't want to be losing spiritual battles, right? If I hope to be victorious, I must understand who Christ is. And I must understand that he himself is victorious. And I must understand who I am in Christ. You see, that's the, the big emphasis of the first three chapters of Ephesians is who we are in Christ. And what God has accomplished for us in Christ. In, in the book of Ephesians, over 31 times, 31 times in six chapters... 
Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, to describe who we are and what God has done for us. You see, you are not going to be able to stand against the attacks of the enemy unless you have settled these things in your heart. Who Christ is, what he has accomplished, where he is now, who you are now in Christ. You see, there is a fundamental change that takes place in the heart of a believer. A fundamental change. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now, in Christ, God has made you alive in Christ and seated you in in Christ in the, the heavenly places. Far above with Christ, all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that in Christ, he has placed all things under our feet, as Pastor Terry said. We must understand this fundamental change that has taken place. I used to be dead, but now in Christ I am alive. You see, Christians are not just like everybody else, but we just enjoy religious activities. We just like going to church, and other people, they like going to movies, and other people like studying botany, but we're all essentially the same. No! That there is a fundamental change that has taken place at the core of who you are. You were dead, but now in Christ you are alive. And you are filled with his spirit and you are sealed with his spirit, awaiting the day of redemption. And that the one who called you from death to life is able to do so because he himself passed from death to life. He himself has defeated death. He himself walked out of the grave. He himself has all authority in heaven and on earth and has immeasurable power far above all rule and dominion. We have to understand that if we're going to wage spiritual battles and hope to win them. That's what Paul means by the language of finally. Finally. That we must understand who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us and where he is seated today. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, this is where a lot of Christians make mistakes in fighting spiritual battles is we fight them in our own strength. We fight them in our own might. We don't use the spiritual weapons that we have, but rather we fall back on our flesh. When when we fight in our own strength, what does that look like? It looks like acting and responding to things in our lives out of the flesh and not out of the Spirit. We're called to live according to the Spirit. Not according to our flesh. How do you know if you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit? Well, let me help you. This is how it works for me. When something happens to me, my immediate response is the flesh. That's my immediate response, right? When somebody cuts me off, when somebody says something to me, when when somebody rubs me the wrong way, and I know you think I'm just this holy saint that never has any problems, and I just kind of float above everything in life, But my wife will be the first to tell you, every once in a while, I get in the flesh. Every once in a while, especially if it's been a few hours too long between meals, I really get in the flesh. My first reaction is often a fleshly reaction. And so I must learn to, I must... Apply the the word of God and take every thought captive in those moments. When when somebody says something to me, when somebody uh, does something to me and comes against me or, or, or whatever, that initial reaction is often a fleshly reaction. And I have to say, hold on, you know, rein it in. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? 
You've, you've, you've spoken those fleshly things. And it feels so good, doesn't it? For about half a second. And then you're just like, well, my evening's ruined. My week is over. I'm going to be spending the next six hours trying to fix this mess that I made in 0.6 seconds. But listen, we have another spirit alive inside of us other than the flesh. And if we will just pause for a moment, and, and this is where Paul says here, praying at all times. Praying at all times. When those things happen, those, those attacks, those whatever it is that ruffles our flesh, if, if we will just obey this word and just pause and pray and say, God, I need your help right now. God, what, what they said, what they did, it's, it's raising my blood pressure. I need your help. Guess what God's going to do? He's going to help you. God, I, I, give, me, give me wisdom. Give me the words to say. Lord, Lord, help me not to speak out of my flesh, but help me to speak in love. Help me to speak out of love for this person that you love. Help me to actually love this person right now. What does that look like? What, what would it look like if, if, if that person said those things to you, Jesus? How would you respond? You know, in the, the 90s, we all made these WWJD bracelets. You remember those? It was real hip for about 30 minutes. What would Jesus do? I know it's kind of a corny thing, but it's, it's really true. It's really true. You know, when we reduce things to just a slogan, it, it becomes cliche. But the truth behind it is powerful. If we would really ask ourselves, what would Jesus do right now? What would he say? How would he respond? And then in the power of the Spirit, endeavor to do that. That's what it means when he says, to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You see, when we respond in the flesh, we're responding in our own might. When we try to just figure things out without taking them to the Lord in prayer, Lord, give me your wisdom, give me your insight, help me to make a decision, Lord, that's not based on my flesh, but that honors and glorifies you. When we don't do that, we're living in the flesh and we're not fighting, we're not living in the strength of his might, in the power of his might which we have to admit is, is somewhat silly when we have access to his power and his might. To, to, just, to just not take advantage of that seems a little bit silly, seems a little bit strange. It's like when I go to the airport and you, know, you have those huge long stretches of, of walkway and they have those motorized escalators, those, those just motorized walkway. Whenever I see those, you know what I do? I get on it, and I, I, it never fails. Half the people are not walking on the thing. And I'm just like, I don't understand. Maybe there's like a, a, a phobia, like an escalator phobia that I don't know about. But if you have access to, to more power, why don't you take it? But so many times we just go through life not living in the Lord's power, even though we have access to it. And we're like the guy who's carrying three bags, laboring along, and we're just whizzing right on by. I want to be like the guy, I want to be the smart guy on the, the motorized walkway. Amen? <laughs> to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He goes on to say that our weapons are not of the flesh and, and we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is something else that we have to remind ourselves of often. Why? Because we see flesh and blood, don't we? When we flip on the news, who do we see? We see flesh and blood. We, we don't see principalities and, and powers and the rulers of, of the evil darkness of this present age when, when we go through this life. No, we see flesh and blood. 
And the temptation is to try to wage battle flesh and blood against flesh and blood. That's a temptation of the enemy. Because if we do that, we're not fighting the enemy. And if you're not fighting against the enemy, you're not going to, to win the battle. We have to remind ourselves of this often. Now we see people, we see those through which Satan has captured them and through them is waging his war. But hear me in this, they are not our enemy. Satan is the enemy. We must look beyond flesh and blood. If we only see and, and become preoccupied with those who have been captured to do Satan's will, it is only a distraction. And a distracted army is a losing army. If we're fighting the wrong enemy, we're not going to win. And so who is our enemy? Well, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. This is verse 12. The rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When Paul talks about the heavenly places, he's talking about the spirit world, the spiritual dimension, the supernatural realm. There's more going on than what we can just see with our natural eye. There's a supernatural world at work and at play. And the rulers and the authorities he's talking about are not political or governmental, but they are spiritual. He's talking about demons and Satan and the spiritual forces of satanic attack. Now, Paul had already mentioned these rulers and authorities earlier in this letter. And so, when we read about them here, if we don't remind ourselves what he said about them there, we're not going to have the full picture. So, flip back with me quickly to Ephesians 3 where he mentions these rulers and authorities. Ephesians chapter 3, he mentions them specifically in verse 10. But he starts this discussion earlier in verse 5, uh, verse 4. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. When Paul here talks about a mystery, he's talking about something that was hidden in the past, but that has now been revealed. Amen. It was hidden in the Old Testament. It was veiled in the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. But when Christ came, he, he revealed this mystery. Paul says which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it wasn't known then, but it is known now, this mystery of Christ. Well, what is this mystery? And I'm going to show you why this is important to the rulers and the authorities in just a second. But in verse 6, he says, this mystery is that, okay, what is this mystery? What is it? It is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, the body of Christ, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament that has been revealed in Christ is that the Gentile nations also belong to Christ. That it's not just the, the ethnic Jews that God had a plan for, but that what God was doing was a plan to redeem all of mankind, all of creation. Every tribe and tongue and nation and culture will be gathered around the throne worshiping Christ. That is what was hidden in the past, but has now been revealed through Christ. And this is good news, he says. This is good news that Christ is redeeming the nations, that they belong to Christ. Verse 7, of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. 
To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here this, verse 10. So that through the church, that's you and me, the body of Christ, the manifold wisdom, multifaceted, like a beautiful diamond, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? So this mystery, okay, this mystery that was hidden in the, in, in the, in the times past, it was veiled, that it, it wasn't revealed, that, that Christ was, the work of Christ was to purchase the nations, the, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, bringing every nation, tribe, and tongue into the kingdom of God, that through the church, this mystery is being revealed. And who is this mystery being revealed to? It's being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That through you and me, through the church, marching forward in the power of the Spirit, taking territory from the enemy, we announce to them and reveal to them that Christ is victorious, that his kingdom is moving forward, and that he has risen from the dead, and that all nations, tribes, and tongues belong to him. And we announce that through the work that he has given us in the proclamation of the gospel. We announce that and make that manifest and make that clear to the demon forces that would try and say otherwise. I know that's a mouthful. Through us, the church, this mystery hidden from ages in God is being made known to these, again, demonic rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. When he talks about eternal purpose, he says that this was God's plan before he even created the worlds. This is what God has been up to from eternity past. In whom we have boldness. We don't have to cower in fear at the threats, the empty threats of the enemy, because they're all empty threats. Whatever the enemy threatens against us is empty because his power is bankrupt. He has no power, he has been defeated. So we now have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. So he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The mystery that's being revealed through the church to these dark spiritual forces with which we are to uh, wrestle against and stand against, Christ has defeated Colossians chapter 2, flip over just a couple pages in Colossians 2. I'll only read one verse here. I don't have time to commentate on it. Colossians 2.15. That through the cross, Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The, the enemy has no power. The, the enemy has no weapons. The enemy has been defeated, disarmed, and put to open shame. And so how does the enemy then work in our lives? How does the enemy take strongholds and set up places of of, of, of of defense against the church if the enemy has been defeated, it's because the church has been deceived. Amen. The church is deceived. The church doesn't understand the power that we have. The church doesn't understand who Christ is. They don't understand the work that he accomplished. They don't understand where he's seated right now. They don't understand any of this. 
Because the church that believes these truths are an, is an unstoppable force. Because the enemy has been defeated, if the church will be militant, if the church will stand in the power of Christ, as we sang tonight, here in the power of Christ, I stand. If the church will stand, the enemy cannot be victorious. He has been defeated. We have seen this all throughout church history. The kingdom of Christ has toppled empires. The kingdom of Christ has toppled empires when the church stands on the truth of the word of God. There is no power on earth or in hell that can stand against the power of Christ. One of the most encouraging books I've ever read, I want to commend to you, speaks about the, victor the victories of the kingdom of God and the church in history over the last 2,000 years. It's called The Puritan Hope. The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. And it talks about when, when God's people will get a hold of these truths and truly live them out in their lives and not just compartmentalize them to, well, it's just Sunday go to meeting and, and that's my, my church life and then I have the rest of my life, but truly live for Christ boldly, unashamedly, advancing the kingdom of Christ, speaking of the great victories that have been won for the name of Christ in history, the Puritan hope, I, I, I commend it to you wholeheartedly. It will encourage you. It will give you a vision for the church being victorious. But if, if the enemy has been disarmed and the enemy truly has no power, the only way to stop the church is either to deceive it or to distract it. Those two Ds, deceive or distract. Distract on a bunch of things that don't matter, or to deceive it. And one of the great deceptions that the enemy has sold to the church is that we are defeated. That the church is a big bunch of losers. And that the devil owns the earth and that the devil and his plan and purpose is, is what's going to win out in history. That is a lie from the enemy. But the church believes it all the time. The church accepts this idea of, well, well, and, and how, how, do, how do I know that the church accepts this? Because we hear it all the time. Well, things are just getting worse and worse, but, but that's the way it's supposed to go. That's God's plan. These are the last days. It's all going to go burn up. That's not God's plan. And that's not what's going to happen. The church is going to be victorious. The enemy is going to try and deceive the church into believing they're defeated. But, but one generation is going to wake up. And, and Paul's generation got this. These men who turned the world upside down. They had nothing. They didn't have one-tenth of the resources that the church in America has. They didn't have one one-hundredth of the resources that the church in America had. But they had the power of the Spirit of God and they had the Word of God. And they believed it. And they lived it. And they turned the world upside down. And we can turn the world upside down too. But we must uproot unbelief in our own hearts and in our own lives. And we must not accept a theology of defeat. Because we do not serve a defeated God. So the only way to stop the church is to deceive it or distract it. And this is where the armor of God comes in. And this is what we're going to be walking through the next few weeks. Putting on the armor of God. He says, take on these things. Add these things to your life. Take them up. Put them on. And I would submit to you that putting on the armor of God is not going through the physical motions of putting on a helmet and a breastplate. That's great for teaching kids about the armor of God. But let me encourage you that putting on the armor of God involves much more than just going through the physical emotions. If that's the extent of your use of the armor of God, I'd, 
honestly, it's not doing you much good. To utilize the armor of God, we must take these things listed here and incorporate them into our lives. It's utilizing these things listed as we stand against the devil. What are these things he lists? Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. We must utilize these things. We must embrace these things. We must set aside falsehood and embrace truth. We must not accept any lie or go along with lies. It's a huge problem in our world today. I'm, I'm really going off at this point, but it's a huge problem in our world today is people living by lies. Men can get pregnant. And Christians everywhere sign off on that, on their DEI inclusion nonsense for their job. They, they, they agree to it. Yeah, okay, yes, I, I, I accept, I believe, blah, blah, blah. No, you're living by a lie. You're accepting a lie. If Christians would just stand up and say, we're not going to live by lies. We're not accepting lies. Men can't get pregnant. I'm sorry. I know that's crazy. I know it's crazy talk today, but <laughs> this thing would be over in 20 seconds. But Christians are so weak and flabby. And let me tell you why. It's because we have no moral authority because we are living in sin ourselves. We've compromised with the devil in our own lives. We, we, we haven't even picked up the word of God, the sword of the spirit in our own lives. So the devil has us right where he wants us. But hear me in this. We are not defeated. We are not defeated. The moment you take the sword of the spirit in your hand, what does the Bible say? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Bottom line. He will run with his tail tucked between his legs. But we must submit to God. We must resist the devil. That's what it means to take on the armor of God. To utilize these things in our lives. And the result of this, finally, I'm at the end. The result is that we stand. We stand. Four times in this passage, he uses the word stand. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. The result of us taking the armor of God, of putting it on, of, of, of making use of these weapons that he has given us is that we would stand. You might ask the question, why the emphasis on standing? Well, because when you are in a battle, the one left standing at the end is the victor. The one standing at the end of a battle is the one who is victorious. And so we will be victorious in our lives, in our families, in our communities when we stand. And when we stand in the power of God. The call from, from Christ to his church is to stand your ground. To stand on the truth of God's word. And this call to stand is a call to victory. We do not, as the church, bow to the lies of the enemy. We do not bow to woke ideology. We do not kneel before Caesar or the state. But as we sang tonight, we stand. And in the power of Christ, we stand. And this is what, historically, every generation, there is a group of Christians who say, we will not bow, but we will stand for Christ. The enemy cannot defeat a person like that. And that stance has toppled empires. Look at, look at church history. 
When, when these words were written, Paul writes this letter as a Roman prisoner. He is a prisoner in Rome. But where is Rome today? It's ruins. It's in the dustbin of history. But the kingdom of Christ has spanned the globe and will continue to march forward victorious as God's people stand in the power of Christ. Amen. Amen. I think it's very appropriate that I ask you to stand with me uh, tonight. Father, we thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Lord, we are not a defeated people, but we are a victorious people. Lord, not through our own might or strength, but only by your grace. Lord, we once were dead in our trespasses and sins. We once were captive by the enemy, but you have set us free. You have raised us to new life. And you, because of your power over the enemy have claimed us for yourself. Lord, we now belong to you, sealed with the power of your spirit. Lord, our destiny is secure. Our future is secure because you hold the future. Lord, the here and now you have called us to not bend the knee and bow to anyone or anything other than your name. You are the only one that we bow to, to every other so-called authority that would exalt its name against you, we stand and we declare the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Christ is King. Lord, fill us with your strength, fill, fill us with your boldness, fill us with your grace, fill us with your love. Lord, where we have believed the lies of the enemy that you would show us, as we saturate ourselves in the truth of your word. Pray that you would bless us as we go out this week. Help us to be salt and light. And that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray.